A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. Quick note: we have events coming up in Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Not Cambridge, United Kingdom yet, and New York City. Go to storycollider.org for more info. This week's story is from Carter Edwards. Carter was the very first person we asked to be on this show way back in the day. He returned for our five-year anniversary show, May 2015, at Littlefield in Brooklyn. So when I was five and a half, and I'm going to say five and a half very specifically because when you are five and a half, you count the months like they are these like electric turds that you just cannot wait to get rid of. Like every single month is the most important thing just to throw away from yourself as hard as you possibly can. So I was five and a half and it was Christmas. And... I was spending, my older sister and I were spending Christmas for the first time with my newly divorced father because my father and mother had separated when I was three and three quarters. And we were spending it for the first time in his apartment in Haverhill, Massachusetts. If you've never been to Haverhill, Massachusetts, it's exactly like every other town in northern Massachusetts. If you've never been to, to any town in northern Massachusetts, don't bother. It is basically just apple orchards and pig farms and a gnawing, longing sense of depression and bitterness over the failed textile industry that ended in the early 1900s. So we're there, and, and my father is trying really, really, really hard this Christmas, not just because it's our first Christmas, also because he failed miserably when it came to my birthday earlier this year. Earlier that year, not this year, that year. Because <laughs> I'm not five and a half. Because for my birthday, there was only one thing that I wanted. There was one thing, and it was like one absolute thing that I wanted, and I was so very clear about it. I wanted a carrot playing the piano for my birthday cake. That is what I wanted. I don't know why. Right now, I could not tell you for the love of God why that's what I wanted, but I was fucking clear about what I wanted. <laughs> and when my father brought out the birthday cake and it was a carrot cake, let me say that things didn't go exactly well after that because... No five-year-old wants a birthday cake that's invo that involves vegetables. That's just not how they work. And so my father was trying tremendously hard this Christmas. He was trying so very, very hard. He was just so, he so desperately wanted to do well. So we arrived on December, December 21st, you know, a few days before Christmas, and there we are. We march into his new three-room apartment in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Don't ever go there. Um, and the tree is amazing. It's that, it's that tree. Like, he's, he's outdone himself with the tree so that, like, the top of the tree is sort of, like, touching the ceiling and bending over a bit. Like, he, he had a little bit too much hubris when it came to the tree, but it's totally fine. And underneath the tree, it's just full of presents. And I'm like, fuck yeah, Dad, nice work. This is amazing. <laughs> so I walk over to the tree because, you know, I'm five, and I'm like, of course, I'm going to go inspect all these presents because that's what you do. It's your job as a five-year-old is to inspect all the presents. So when I look at the first present, it says, oh, to Carter from Dad. To Amy, my older sister, from Dad. 
to Gail, my future stepmother, from dad. I'm like, oh, this is great. He's done a good job. I dig a little bit deeper. And there I see to Amy from Santa, to Carter from Santa, to Gail from Santa, to dad from Santa, which is a little weird. And so I march over to my father, like the three feet to where his kitchen, the kitchen area of his apartment is, and I say, dad, why are there presents underneath the tree on December 21st from Santa Claus? And he turns this color, which I was never able to describe until I became a drinker, and I can now call it Aperol Pink. He turns, he turns Aperol Pink and just looks down at the floor and just says, well, I mean, you know, Santa had to come by early because he wanted to make sure that he didn't miss giving you, and my sister's just over in the corner with her head in her hands, and she just goes, oh, dad. And all at once, I understood. I understood everything. Like, and it wasn't sadness that washed out of me when I realized that Santa Claus didn't exist. Spoilers, guys, sorry. It wasn't sadness that washed out of me. It wasn't that at all. It was just, it was just this sense that I had just a moment ago existed in a world where Santa Claus existed. And now, just at the blink of an eye, I existed in a world where, and because my father is terrible at cross-examination and being put under any kind of pressure, he very summar summarily dispatched the Easter Bunny and the Boogeyman and the Tooth Fairy very, very quickly. So all of a sudden I went from a world where all of these beautiful magical creatures existed to one where they didn't at all. And it was just this seismic movement underneath my feet as I grappled with this new reality of how the world worked. Now we're gonna have a drink of beer. It happened again a few years later when I first went into uh, junior high school. And I was sitting there in junior high school at our, our, our first day of history class, and, 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 and my, 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 my fifth grade history teacher, her name was Mrs. Clarkson, I think, or some other name that sounds exactly like a fifth grade hist history teacher, you know? Um, Mrs. Clarkson was like, who can tell me one thing about George Washington? And I kind of knew that this was a trick. I kind of didn't think that I should say anything, and so I didn't. But one poor little scapegoat down at the front of the room raised his hand and says, I know that when he was very young, he chopped down a cherry tree, and then he refused to lie about it. And like this witch of a woman was like, no, you are wrong. That did not happen. That never happened. And then she summarily dispatched all of the American history that we had learned from first grade up until fourth grade, and she was like, now you are real citizens of the country, now that you know how things work. And again, it was that same sensation of just like the world moving underneath me, like how can history be unwritten like that? All of a sudden, just with one person's say-so, history is just changed, and it was just so strange. I didn't lament the loss of baby George Washington, it was just curious. And then a few years later, when I was in eighth grade, and I was assigned a science project, and I was in eighth grade, and being in eighth grade, I was tremendously lazy, so I didn't want to do a science project, because who fucking wants to do a science project when you're 14, right? So I didn't want to do a science project, but I had a really kick-ass science project in my back pocket that I had done when I was in fourth grade, right? And I was like, I got this. I'm just going to use that science project. No problem whatsoever. No problem whatsoever. Um, 
And it was on dinosaurs, because I knew fucking everything that I need, everything that you could possibly know about dinosaurs. I knew everything about dinosaurs, guys. I knew all of their names. I knew what they ate. I knew everything about dinosaurs. <laughs> Absolutely everything. I even knew that you could Myers-Briggs people based on what their favorite dinosaur was. You could very easily tell their personality. So like, like if your favorite dinosaur was a Tyrannosaurus Rex, well then you're probably super type A. You're kind of really boring to talk to at cocktail parties. You're tremendously obvious and you right now work on Wall Street. Totally obvious, right? If, you, if, your favorite, if your favorite dinosaur is a pterodactyl, then you're probably a little bit small for your size. You're kind of terrified, and you genuinely believe right now that you might one day get superpowers. Totally <laughs> obvious, right? If your favorite dinosaur is that giant swimmy one that like, just swims around, like, then you probably, if you were a character in Harry Potter, be put in Hufflepuff. Like, really obvious stuff, guys. Really obvious. Um, my favorite dinosaur was the Triceratops because, come on, guys, it's fucking awesome. It has two swords and a shield built into its anatomy. Like, that is an amazing fucking dinosaur. That is the best fucking dinosaur, obviously. Also, if your favorite dinosaur is a triceratops, then you're genuinely terrified of being bullied pretty much all of the time, which is why you like having a sword and shield attached to you sort of perpetually, right? I knew everything there was you need to know about dinosaurs, like every fucking thing. I even knew what everybody's second favorite dinosaur in the world was, right? And that's the brontosaurus. <laughs> Brontosaurus is no one's favorite dinosaur. Like, come on, let's be serious. It's gigantic, it's really big, it's really slow, it barely knows how to swim, it just eats leaves. It's like there's nothing to like about the brontosaurus. But it's also like kind of an amazing like teddy bear looking thing. So it's like there's nothing to like about it, but there is everything to love about the brontosaurus. <laughs> It's the second best dinosaur in the fucking world, right? So like I said, going into this eighth grade science fair project, I knew I was gonna ace it because I knew everything there was to know about dinosaurs, no problem. But I decided just to do a little bit of research just to make sure, you know, I was, I was right. And so I opened a couple of dinosaur books only to discover that either in the interim between fourth grade and eighth grade or just because I had aged into some new material that the brontosaurus no longer existed. That, that, that the brontosaurus had been discovered in the late 1800s, 1897 or something like that, and it was discovered by this paleontologist, and he declared it the brontosaurus, and it became the second best dinosaur in the world. But that same paleontologist also discovered a different dinosaur earlier, which was the apatosaurus. And upon closer examination, they were just the same fucking dinosaur, just two different people. And so, because the Apatosaurus, which is a really shitty name for a dinosaur, we gotta admit, because the Apatosaurus was, 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 was discovered first, the Brontosaurus no longer existed, it was just another Apatosaurus. And it was that same thing, that same feeling, the, the sensation of sinking in quicksand where just a minute ago, you had been standing on bedrock. I, I, the whole world stopped making any kind of sense. And the thing is, it was different. It was different a little bit because, like, 
Santa Claus and, and the Tooth Fairy and the Boogeyman, like, those were constructs of my parents, and my parents were hippies, and they fucking went to Woodstock, and okay, they can do whatever weird shit they want to do to me as a kid. That's fine, they're just people. And like, baby George Washington, that is just a construct, albeit a super creepy construct of the US government, set to make us feel really, really like emboldened about our country, but still, those are people, those are people creating these ideas. The brontosaurus was bone and fact and like it was science the brontosaurus how could it suddenly not just go the way of the dodo how could it just not didn't just disappear it was just unwritten it didn't just stop existing it had never existed a thing that i knew a thing that i knew absolutely without the shadow of a doubt to be the second best dinosaur in the world was just gone unwritten and vanished. And if something as enormous as that, something as large and important as the brontosaurus, because the brontosaurus is fucking important, guys, to 14-year-olds, holy shit. If that can disappear, then if that becomes untrue, then what else becomes untrue? What else can we say that we actually know if we don't know this thing? It terrified me. I wept, I genuinely wept. And it, it stayed with me. This idea, this idea that, that any fact, anything that we know, any piece of knowledge can just at the stroke of a pen, at the turn of a single knob, can suddenly become untrue, can suddenly become non-existent. This idea stayed with me. It stays with me now, right now. I don't know anything. I don't know that anything that I know is genuinely true. I told you I was like five and a half when I discovered that when my father eviscerated Santa Claus. I don't know if that's true, guys. I might have been four, I might have been six. Who fucking knows? Ben said that I'm a writer by trade, and it's true, and when people ask me, do you write fiction or nonfiction, I'm like, fuck you, what is the fucking difference? I don't know the difference. I'm not sure that there is a difference. And I think that's fucking cool. I love that. I love that we have decided to embrace knowledge as a thing that exists on quicksand. I love that we have embraced fact as completely impermanent. There is nothing absolute. The only thing absolute in the universe is the fact that there is nothing absolute in the universe. That is an amazing thing to hang your hat on for as long as it stays around. It was one of the most defining things in my entire life and I celebrate it all the time until about eight weeks ago when I was scrolling through Facebook and I come across this article that says they have gone back and done a tiny bit of research, tiny bit of stuff, and they realize that there is actually a marked difference between the bones that were found in 1897 and the ones that were found in 1890, different enough for it to be its own species, which means all of a sudden the brontosaurus is back. The second best dinosaur in the world is fucking back just like that. And not like it just came back on the stage. It has always fucking been there. We just didn't know it. How fucking amazing is that? How fucking cool is that? That is just the best thing that there is about 
people, that this is how we have chosen to engage with the universe around us, like that, that knowledge simply is moldable and changeable and shiftable, that we don't actually ever know anything. But there is one thing that I do know, that I do know absolutely and unequivocally, and it is true and will always be true. And that is that that next year, when I turned six, and they brought out my birthday cake, there was a carrot plucked fresh from my mother's garden, enormous, and with hands made out of olive twigs, playing an upright cake in the shape of a piano, frosted brown, with Kit Kats for keys and white chocolate as well, sitting on a bench of Hershey's chocolate. And I would just say that as odd our relationship is with knowledge, as movable as it is, there is nothing as permanent and wonderful as our sense of awe. Thank you, guys. That was Carter Edwards. Carter's work has appeared in Mathematics Magazine, Hobart, The New York Times, and others. His debut collection of fiction, The Aversive Clause, won the 2011 Hudson Prize and was published by Black Lawrence Press. His debut collection of poetry, From the Standard Cyclopedia of Recipes, was released last summer, also from Black Lawrence Press. He is a 2014 Poetry Fellow of the New York Foundation of the Arts, attended the graduate writing program at the New School in New York, and lives in Brooklyn. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, I, Daniel, Christine Gentry, and Skylar Bear. The podcast was produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio, the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Littlefield for hosting the show, and to Carter for coming back after five years. Thanks for listening. <laughs>